Amen. Let's pray once again together. Gracious Father, we can sing great truth like that. Our hearts can be at rest and can be at peace in you today because of that reality. Jesus Christ is the reigning king. He has conquered sin and death. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose triumphant. He ascended into heaven and he will come again. Father, we, you know this, you live in a world of such chaos and disaster and turmoil, and yet there is one who is the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, and how we long for his reign, we long for his rule to be made known, we long for more hearts and minds to receive him as the king, as the conquering king that he is. Lord, we pray for his return. We long for that day. And until that day comes, God, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to live in light of that truth. Lord, we pray that you would use this study through the book of Revelation to change us, to transform us, to grow us in our love for you, in the certainty of our hope, in the joy of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in his precious name. Amen. If you would, please be seated and take your Bible and open to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. And as you turn there, listen to these helpful and instructive words from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, The chapter begins this way, Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Brothers and sisters, these are always challenging words. (laughs) These are always provoking and helpful words, but especially so as we begin our study through the book of Revelation. These verses tell us quite forcefully that without love, without a love for God and a love for one another, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what gifts you have. It doesn't matter what you think you understand. It doesn't matter how intellectually advanced you are. It doesn't matter how spiritual you claim to be. It doesn't matter how extravagant your giving is in God's eyes without love. It is worthless. It counts for nothing. It is noise, it is activity, it is performance that is obnoxious to God. It is repulsive to Him. These are helpful truths for us to be reminded of as we turn to the book of Revelation. Because this book, as you well know, it has, over the years, I think it's fair to say, it has ignited conversation. It has sparked, at times, controversy Much debate and disagreement, but what about love? What about love? Can the book of Revelation really grow us in a love for God and in a love for one another? It can, it should, it must, otherwise we're doing it wrong. We're reading it wrong. We're understanding it wrong. Please note this on your outline. The book of Revelation is a means to, it, 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 it intends to, to produce, to lead to, to inspire worship, wonder, love and praise. Worship, wonder, love and praise. And this is because the book of Revelation shows us the way things really are. The book of Revelation shows us The Lord Jesus Christ, as the Lamb slain, as the victorious Lion of the tribe of Judah. The book of Revelation shows us the true, eternal, reigning King. 
The book of Revelation unveils for us the glory of Christ. It shows us where everything is ultimately heading. It explains to us in rich, vivid details and pictures the glorious end of history as we know it. And so, for many Christians who would maybe readily or easily skip over the book of Revelation or who would prefer to ignore it because it seems hard and it seems filled with strange and difficult imagery, I get it. Oh, I I get you. I feel your pain this morning, okay? This book can seem challenging. This book can seem almost otherworldly and strange. It can be intimidating. And yet, I dare say, this is the book that you didn't know you needed. This is the book that you didn't know you needed, but God knew that you needed it. God knew that we needed it. And so he closes the Bible He closes His Spirit-inspired Word to us like this with this revelation. And so, with that in mind, look again at the first five words of this revelation. Just the first five words. It reads like this, verse 1. The revelation of end times. Doesn't say that. The revelation of the Antichrist whose name is Nikolai Carpathia. Doesn't say that either. How about this? The revelation of the tribulation. No. The revelation of God's plan for Israel. No. The revelation of God's plan for the church. No. The revelation of a coming one world government. No. The revelation of Satan's ultimate destruction. Wrong again. The revelation of the cosmic battle between good and evil. No, no, no. What does it say? Now listen, all those things I just mentioned, important, absolutely. But that's not the theme of this book. This time we'll read the verse for real. The revelation of, say it with me, Jesus Christ. That's it. This is Huge. This is monumental. Please note this on your outline. Verse 1, these first five words provides not only the purpose of this book, but the essential interpretive principle. The essential interpretive principle. If you understand, if you love and embrace the first few words of this book, then you are in good shape going forward. I know you're like, that is so overly simplistic. That cannot be the case. It is the case. It is is true. If you love and embrace the first five words of this revelation, you are in good shape going forward. This book is the revelation, or in Greek, the apocalypsis, meaning the revealing, the unveiling, the showing forth of an individual, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, meaning, meaning, here's what all this means. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to like this book. If you long to see Jesus worshipped and honored, you're going to like this book. If you desire to see the Father's plan to glorify His Son accomplished, you're going to like this book. If you want to see God's people, Christ's reward, gathered to Him and glorified with Him, you're going to like this book. But, if you're merely interested in trying to set dates and understand details about future historical events, you're going to be disappointed. If you're merely interested in learning the identity of the final expression of the Antichrist, you're going to be disappointed. If you just want to know, what are those weird creatures in Revelation chapter 4 that they have six wings and they're all covered with eyes, what are they about? I just want to understand them. Again, you're going to be disappointed. I like how Warren Wearsby explains this, the purpose and focus of the book. He writes these words. John's prophecy is primarily the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of future events. And then he writes this, and this is worth its weight in gold. You must not divorce the person from the prophecy. Don't do that. Don't don't divorce the person from the prophecy. For without the person, there could be no fulfillment of the prophecy. That's good. 
and this, I think, is the point of, and I know we're going to jump way to the end of the book, but hang with me, okay? This, I think, is the point of, of one of my favorite verses in the book of Revelation. Towards the end of the book, in chapter 19, after John sees rejoicing in heaven, after John sees the marriage supper and celebration of Christ with his bride, his people, and John is so overwhelmed, it's in that moment that he actually does a very foolish thing. He does, he does a very stupid thing. The, the angel who had been showing him all of these glorious things has been directing his attention. John, in, in a moment of just think insanity and, and, and overwhelmed by the greatness, he falls down before this angel. He bows down before this angel and the angel is not impressed. The angel is not pleased with John bowing down before him. And the angel says to him in Revelation 19.10, you must not do that. He says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then John records these words of inspired commentary. He writes, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Do you hear that? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Christ, the word of Jesus, the truth concerning Jesus, it is the spirit of prophecy. It is the heart of prophecy. It is the driving force of prophecy. It is the point of prophecy. And so, this is why this revelation, this letter, must begin. I repeat, must begin with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be tempted to say, that's not such a big deal. The revelation of Jesus Christ. He's revealed in other books. He's revealed in the Gospels, right? I see him there. I see his glory and his goodness and his, and, and his, and his grace there. He's revealed in the New Testament letters as well. What's so special about this book? Well, that's a good question. And I think the answer is found in how we think about and understand how God chose to put the Bible together and to lay out his word to us. Here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, we see Jesus, the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. He's promised. He's predicted. He's foreshadowed. He's longed for. He's anticipated. And then in the Gospels, of course, as we've already noted, He's here. He comes. But He doesn't come as so many expected. He came to die. He is born in a lowly manger. He grows up. He lives. He teaches. He loves. He heals but he ultimately dies. He dies on a cruel cross and then he is gloriously resurrected and he appears to his disciples and spends just a little bit of time with them and he ascends back into heaven where he promises to send forth his spirit to his people. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, the story continues. Christ is faithful to his word and the Holy Spirit comes to his people and the church is born and the gospel is spread and Jesus continues his work in his body here on earth. And then in the rest of the New Testament, in the letters, or as we call them, the epistles, these letters, they unfold the meaning and the significance and the glory of Christ and his saving work. They explain in glory glorious detail, the plan of God. They give vital instruction for the people of God and they explicitly promise that Jesus will come again. In fact, something like 300 plus times in these New Testament letters, the promises given of Jesus's return. And so the question is, what about the return of Jesus Christ? What about the promise of his coming? What about his absolute right to rule with perfect authority? What about justice and righteousness and judgment that is pure and good and holy? What about faithfulness? What about Jesus' promises, all of his promises to his people? Exactly. Exactly. That's why the this book is so fitting. That's why the book of Revelation is so necessary in that it unfolds 
Christ and His glory regarding these very things. And if you, if you want just a glimpse of this, just a taste of, of the ways that Christ is revealed and glorified in this book, just listen to some of the ways that Jesus is described and presented. We'll, we'll, we'll get to all of these in, in due time, uh, but listen to just a few. In Revelation 1-1, as we've already seen, he's simply called Jesus Christ. Meaning, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Promised One. In Revelation 1.5, He is called the Faithful Witness, the Firstborn from the Dead. He's called the Ruler of Kings on Earth. In Revelation 1.8 and in Revelation 21.6, so at the beginning and the end, which is kind of funny for what this point is, at the beginning and the end, Jesus says that He Himself is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Then in Revelation 1.18, He's called the Living One, the One who is alive forevermore. He is the One who holds the keys of death in Hades. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is the One who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In Revelation 2.12, He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. In Revelation 2.18, Jesus calls Himself the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. In Revelation 3.1, He is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In Revelation 3.7, Jesus is the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. You say, what does that mean? I have no idea. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out when, when we get there. Uh, in Revelation 3.14, Jesus is, quote, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In Revelation 5.5, 5, He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. In Revelation 5.6, and then in 11 other places in the book of Revelation that I'll not quote here, Jesus is called the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. In Revelation 6.10, Jesus is called, I love this, Sovereign Lord, Holy and True. In Revelation 19.11, He is called Faithful and true. In Revelation 19.13, He is called the Word of God. In Revelation 19.16, Jesus has a name written on Him. King of kings and Lord of lords. Lastly, in Revelation 21.16, Jesus calls Himself the Root and the Descendant of David, the Bright Morning Star. So yes, it is only right and appropriate that this Revelation begins with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. <laughs> that's, that's not all there is in, in, in the book. It continues. Read on in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ with, sorry, which God, the Father, gave him, referring to Jesus, to show to his servants, that's believers, Christians, the things that must soon take place. Please note this on your outline. This revelation comes, we're told here, it comes from the Father to the Son to believers. Which means then that this is one more way that the Father both fulfills His will and expresses His pleasure in His Son. That's, that's what we are seeing here. God the Father expressing His will, as He will in this revelation. He is also expressing His pleasure in His Son, whom He delights in, whom He will fulfill His glorious promises in and through. Why else would the Father give this revelation to His Son except that the Father loves His Son? The Father delights in His Son. The Father wants Him and everyone to know just how worthy and victorious He is. I think it's fair to say that God the Father loves this book. God the Father loves this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. God the Son 
loves this book. He loves the revelation of Jesus Christ. God the Spirit, who inspired John to write and record these words. He loves this book. He loves the revelation of Jesus Christ. The people of God should love this revelation. We should love the revelation of Jesus Christ. But do you know who does not love this revelation? The enemies of God do not love this book. They despise, they loathe, they hate what is revealed here. The devil would like nothing more than to banish this book, to forget this book, to keep this book far away from the people of God and from all people. I love how uh, Lewis Talbot describes this in his commentary. He writes, Many people treat the book of Revelation like the priest and the Levite treated the man who was beaten and robbed in the story of the Good Samaritan, meaning they pass by on the other side. The devil has turned thousands of people away from this portion of God's word. He does not want anyone to read a book that tells of his being cast out of heaven, nor is he anxious for us to read of the ultimate triumph of his number one enemy, Jesus Christ. The more you study the book of Revelation, the more you understand why Satan fights so hard to keep God's people away from it. He's right. And so, the Father gives this revelation to His Son, and then the Son entrusts this revelation to His people, to those who know and love and follow Him. But here's the question, why? Why? Is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, so eager to give this revelation to His people, to His bride? I mean, yes, to be obedient to the Father, for sure, but there is something more at play here. There's something else happening here. There's more to it. Do you remember what Jesus said to His disciples back in John 15, 15? He said, quote, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Brothers and sisters, that theme, that truth, continues on right here. We are servants, but Jesus does not treat us like servants. He treats us like friends, friends who are invited to hear and to know what the Master is doing. And so what Jesus hears and receives from the Father, He gladly and He eagerly and He lovingly entrusts to His friends and to His disciples. And how does He do this? How does He accomplish this task? Look at the last sentence in verse 1. It reads like this. He, that is Jesus, Jesus made it known by sending his angel. Now stop there for just a moment. As we'll see throughout the book of Revelation, angels play a key role in helping John to see and understand the pictures and the images and the scenes that are set before him. Okay, So angels play a key role in this. This was part of God's good plan. So he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Please note this on your outline. We see that Jesus utilized angels to communicate and show this glorious revelation to John. John, the apostle. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is, this is John. John, that disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, who faithfully wrote and recorded one of the Gospels, one of the four Gospels, the Gospel of John. John, who was inspired to write three other New Testament letters, short New Testament letters. We've given them very clever names. First John, second John, third John. Uh, and, and so now John here, John, who by this time, listen, is an old man. John is an old man, an old, wealthy, healthy, comfortable, famous Christian celebrity who spends all of his time 
doing book signings and flying around the known world in his luxury jet. Sometimes John likes to take his yacht when he cruises around the Mediterranean Sea. Is, is, is that how John the Apostle lives? Is that how John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, is that, is that how John receives this revelation of Jesus Christ? Not hardly. Jump ahead a few verses to verse 9, and John writes this, I, John, your brother and partner, listen to this, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. Why? On account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why is John on the island of Patmos? Why had John been exiled there as a prisoner of Rome to this rocky, lonely island? The text tells us, uh, on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, now, wait, wait a minute. That, that's funny. That's the exact same language that we see in verse 9 that, that, that we just saw in, in, in verses 1 and 2, where John was described as being so faithful that he was faithful to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, what did that get him? What did John's faithfulness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, what did that earn John? What did that get John at this point, at this moment in his life? Exile, prison, persecution. That's interesting. Do you remember back when John was a young man, he had a brother named James? Together they were called the Sons of Thunder. The Sons of Thunder. They were called this because they were known to be a little loud, a little arrogant, a little reckless, and a little quick-tempered. One day, in Matthew chapter 20, James and John's mom, probably at their request, came to Jesus and asked for a favor. Here's what she wanted. I want my sons in the kingdom to sit on either side of you. One at your right and one at your, one at your left. Right? James and John wanted place of power, the place of prestige, the place of authority. And when Jesus heard this request, do you remember what he said? He said, quote, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They, James and John, said to him, we are able. Jesus, oh yeah, we got this. Jesus we can drink your cup. Jesus, we can hang with you. Jesus, remember who we are? We're the sons of thunder, baby. You, you got power. You got authority. We can drink that cup. We can, we can hang with you. We, yes, Jesus. Yes, we are ready. We, we want in on that. To, Je- to that, Jesus said, you will drink my cup. Now, pause there for just a moment. Before we read on, you've probably already picked up on the fact this is not the cup of riches, fame, and an easy, comfortable life. This is the cup of suffering. This is the cup of following Jesus, even in the midst of, especially in the midst of, trials and difficulties. Brothers and sisters, remember James, James and John. James was the first apostle killed executed for his faith. You can read about it in in, in Acts chapter 12. And John, John would live a long life, but it would not be an easy life. And here in his old age, he would be exiled to the harsh island of Patmos. So yes, they would drink Jesus' cup, but then Jesus adds these words, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. James and John would both, hear me out, they would both need to learn the lesson of entrusting themselves to the Father's will. They would both need to learn to entrust themselves to God's will, to God's timing, to God's plan for their growth, 
for their sanctification and for their ultimate future glorification with Jesus Christ. So yes, John is the author, the human writer who received this revelation. And please note this on your outline. John received this revelation, as we've noted, late in life, most likely around the year 95 A.D., while wicked, cruel, paranoid Domitian was emperor over Rome. So again, John is the human author. He's the one who received, who physically wrote and recorded this. And we have good reason to believe this. We have good reason to think that this is so. First of all, John claims to be the author multiple times throughout this letter. Secondly, the early church knew and testified to the fact that John was the author. For example, uh, uh, one of the early church fathers named Justin Martyr, who was a, uh, he was an apologist for the Christian faith. That doesn't mean he apologized for the Christian faith. It, 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 it meant that he tried to explain and defend and show uh, the realities of the true saving faith in, in Jesus Christ. Justin Martyr wrote as early as 135 A.D. these words, saying, quote, There was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem and that thereafter the general and in short the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. And what's really interesting about Justin Martyr and his writing of this is that at least for a brief time, for a short time, Justin Martyr lived in Ephesus and attended the church there in Ephesus. If you're like, man, why does that sound so familiar? That's one of the seven churches that that this book, the book of Revelation, was specifically written and given to. Justin Martyr worshipped there and attended there for at least some time. And then another early church father named Irenaeus also wrote that John was the one who had received this revelation. And what's really interesting about Irenaeus is that he was a disciple of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop or the pastor of the church at Smyrna. Smyrna, also one of the seven churches that this letter was written to. And even more than that, Polycarp was known to be and to sit directly under the teaching of John the Apostle while he was still alive. And so, brothers and sisters, the point is the testimony of the early church regarding John's role in receiving this revelation, it is clear. I like how John MacArthur describes this in his commentary. He writes, quote, that the early church could have been mistaken about who wrote Revelation virtually from the time that it was written is inconceivable. He's right. It is inconceivable. And so we see that at the end of John's life, after living for Christ, after loving and leading in the church, after writing the Gospel of John, after writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jesus now entrusts this last revelation, this last book of the Bible, to John to write and to record. And as we think about John's Lifetime, as we think about the, the works that God inspired John to write and record, we could think of them like this. In the Gospel of John, the message is, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the letters of John, the message is, be sure that you are in Christ. Be sanctified in Christ. And in the revelation given to John, the message is, be ready. Be prepared for he is coming soon. Now, lastly, for this morning, we're going to look at verse 3. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 reads like this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Number four, noted on your outline, we are a blessed people. We are. We are a blessed people to read, to hear, to understand, to obey 
this revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you may hear that. And again, I, I hope I have disarmed you. I hope you are so thrilled that we're going verse by verse through the book of Revelation that you just cannot wait already for next week. But just in case you're not there yet, just in case your attitude is blessed, I don't feel blessed. I feel confused. I feel confused. I still don't know what to do with all of the things that are presented in this revelation. In the, I'm confused. How am I supposed to understand all this? How is this really a blessing? Well, in the few minutes that we have left, we want to unpack why this book is a blessing. And we want to unpack how believers have over the years sought to interpret this book, how, how, how they've sought to read and, and to understand um, this book. And if you've been waiting for me to say controversial things this morning, boom, the time has finally arrived, okay? And so if your neighbor fell asleep, wake him up because we'll get to the controversial part, okay? But, so, this isn't controversial though. Uh, if you're a believer, you should be able to say yes and amen to this, okay? Let me start off and give you just three reasons why this book is a blessing. It is a blessing to read, it is a blessing to hear, to obey, and to know. Number one, this book is a blessing because it reveals and shows us what is true and glorious about Jesus Christ. It does. It shows us what is true and glorious about Christ, and that is a blessing. Number two, this book is a blessing because God works through His Word to sanctify us. Part of your sanctification process is the book of Revelation. Part of you growing in Christ to know and to love Him and to think like Him and to be conformed to His image, part of that is this book, is the book of Revelation for your good, for your Christ-likeness. And number three, this book is a blessing because it is unique. It is so unique. Much of it is written in the style of apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is wonderful. It's wonderful because it uses vivid pictures, it uses gripping images, it uses powerful and dramatic symbolism to teach and to convey truth. To teach and to convey eternal realities. And listen, this was God's choice. God chose to give this last book and this last revelation in this way. God wanted to use this style to graphically illustrate the power, the grace, the glory, the might, the judgment, the authority, the overwhelming victory of Jesus Christ. And that is a blessing. It is a blessing to see and to know and to read and to behold this. Now, having said all of that, just because something is a blessing doesn't mean it's easy. Just because something is a blessing doesn't mean that it's not going to take work. Work on our part to understand and to unpack and to know. I don't want to bore you ever with unnecessary information. But I do think it is worth noting that over the centuries there have been predominantly four ways that believers have sought to understand this book. Now, we're talking about godly believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who love the truth, who have wrestled with what are the best ways to understand and to know and to interpret this particular book. These are believers who love Christ, who long for his return, who know that he is victorious, and yet sometimes believers interpret this book in different ways. So very quickly, I just want to mention these four approaches. Now, listen, even as I mention these Four approaches, we need to remember that there's quite a variety underneath each of these four approaches. Alright, so as I mentioned the first one and the second one, and there's a lot of sub-points and sub-categories and sub-things that we could say about all of these views. And we're not going to try to say all that there can be said. 
we don't have time and that's fine. Uh, but, but what we are going to say hopefully should allow us to think in some big, broad categories. And even on top of that, there are godly brothers and sisters and theologians who even seek to blend some of these approaches together as they understand and discern this book. But again, for this morning, this will help us to think in some, in some broad categories. Okay, So here's the first method. The first method we'll mention is the historicism method of interpretation. Uh, this view sees that Revelation, if you're filling in blanks, is a timeline of church history. Okay, A timeline of church history. This method sees the book of Revelation as basically a timeline of church history, meaning that this book shows us all the major events of church history until the eventual coming of Jesus Christ. So in this view, the book of Revelation, it's like a map. It's a map of the church's development from the day of Pentecost until the return of Jesus. This view was fairly popular during the time of the Reformation, but it has fallen on hard times since then. There are not many who promote and teach this uh, view today. Um, This morning... In our elder prayer time, I'll not name which elder, but one of the elders thought it would be funny if we labeled the auditorium and had you sit according to your eschatological position on this. And so, you know, we had one section, here's where pre-mill, pre-trib, and the all-mill, and the post-mill, and the historicism, and the preterist, blah, blah, blah. wouldn't that be funny? Uh, we're, we're not going to do that. We're, we're not going to do that. But the point that I'm making here is if we had a section marked historicism, Based on what I understand, it would be largely empty. This, like I said, this view has kind of fallen on, on hard times. One particular challenge related to this view is that no one who holds to this view can generally agree on which events from church history are actually shown in the book of Revelation. And so you have those who are historicists say, no, I think these events are showed here. And this says, well, no, I'm from a different part of the world. And in our understanding of church history, no, these views are, 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 are shared here. And then another issue to this is that historicists, in my opinion, seem a little too eager and a little too prone to read events from their own lifetime into the book of Revelation. So like, this is us, this is us, and we're here, and I see this, and this conference was this, and that speaker was this, and this was this. And so what this does is then current historicists or future historicists are always saying that the old historicists were wrong. Because that wasn't it. What you guys thought it was, that wasn't it. But we finally figured it out. Okay, so I, I, don't, I don't mean to make light of of this view, but I think there are some inherent problems with this view, with just seeing Revelation as a timeline of, of church history. Next, we should note uh, the preterist method of interpretation. This view sees that Revelation is mostly, mostly a historical record of events that took place, so past tense, took place in the first century Roman Empire. Now this, this is a fairly, uh, popular view. This, this is a view that has grown significantly in, in acceptance, especially in recent years. The word preterist or preterism, it literally means, quote, the thing that is past. The thing that is past. So again, this view largely sees the fulfillment of Revelation as a past event. The ESV Study Bible, which, by the way, has some wonderfully helpful general notes. If you want to understand what are the big categories that people think about and try to understand when it comes to the book of Revelation, the ESV Study Bible has lots of helpful information in this. Um, But let me just read you a quote Uh, From their explanation of, of preterism, they write, quote, Preterism thinks that the fulfillment of most of Revelation's visions already occurred in the distant past during the early years of the Christian church. Preterists think these events, either the destruction of Jerusalem or the decline and fall of the Roman Empire or both, would, quote, soon take place only from the standpoint of John and the churches of Asia. Now, here's the thing. I appreciate this view's desire 
to see the book of Revelation as supremely relevant to its original audience. I think that's a strength of this view. This view wants to see and to understand and to know that this book, that this revelation, it was supremely relevant to its original audience. That's a strength of this view. But I also think that this view fails to take into account the global nature, the global scope of the events described here. By trying to see almost all of Revelation as fulfilled in the first century, I don't think this view deals honestly with the prophetic element and with the worldwide scope that this book seems to present and to point to. Now, let me say this. To be sure, we need to make a distinction when we talk about the preterist view. There is an orthodox preterist view and there is a heretical preterist view. There are some preterists, often called full preterists or complete preterists, and they say that the entire book of Revelation was fulfilled in the first century. All of it. The return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, it is done. It is all done. Full, complete preterists deny that there is coming a little, literal bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not orthodox. That is, that is, that is not in line with, with sound teaching, okay? But most preterists don't hold to that. Most preterists are partial preterists, meaning that they see much of Revelation as being fulfilled in the first century, but they acknowledge that the, that the last few chapters are yet to come. Partial preterists believe in a true, literal, bodily return of Jesus Christ, which is wonderful, so it's important to make that distinction, okay? So again, the preterist method of interpretation sees Revelation as mostly a historical record, recording events that took place in the first century Roman Empire. Next, a third view to consider is the idealist method. The idealist method of interpretation. This view sees that Revelation is mostly not tied to any specific historical events at all, but is rather a book of principles, images, and scenes that contrast the battle, the battle, the cosmic battle between good and evil and the ultimate victory of Jesus. Now, in, in, in some ways, in many ways, I kind of appreciate the, the simplicity of this idealist view. It's not worried about history at all. The, the, the idealist says, don't even worry about it. Don't, don't try to connect revelation to either past history or even to future specific historical events because that's not the point of the book. It just shows you in principle and picture that battle between good and evil, right and wrong, and how Jesus Christ is ultimately victorious. So, so don't worry about trying to understand it really in any kind of historical way. But here's the funny thing. Idealists, they don't connect revelation to any specific future historical event until they do. Until they do. Idealists become much more literal with the final chapters of Revelation. And they acknowledge that it does, in fact, point to a real, literal, bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that is a wonderful thing. So the idealist method sees Revelation not so much as history or tied to historical events, past, present, or future, but just as depicting the cosmic battle between good and evil and the eventual victory of Jesus Christ. Now, lastly, we'll consider the futurist method of interpretation. This view sees that Revelation is mostly, mostly prophecy that looks forward to and predicts real future events. And while I, and I do, I dearly love my brothers and sisters who hold to other views. I mean, some of my favorite people do. Some of my favorite people in this whole wide world don't agree with me on, on how the book of Revelation should be interpreted and, and understood. So my favorite people think very differently, and I love them dearly. This futurist method, it is the method of interpretation that I think is most helpful, that I, that I think is correct. I think the book of Revelation should largely be treated as prophecy. Why? Because at least six times the book of Revelation itself 
calls itself prophecy. It says that it is prophecy. I believe prophecy regarding real events and real people that will be fulfilled in God's timing. So with that in mind, look again at verse 3, and let me try to unpack this super briefly. Verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud, what? The words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So again, the perspective of, of this uh, view is that the return of Christ is near. The fulfillment of God's plan and God's real judgment is near. We are indeed living in the last days, the last days that began uh, when Jesus came, was born, and then ascended back into heaven. And because of this, the book of Revelation, I believe, has an important and vital message for every generation of believers. Listen, every generation of believers can and should benefit and love and read and study the book of Revelation. And again, this is why this book, and, and it is unique in this way. The book of Revelation is unique for many reasons. It's, it's, it's certainly unique for this reason because again, it begins and ends with the promise of blessing for those who read it, for those who hear it for those who obey it. That's how the book begins and ends for every believer who would know it and love it and read it. In the very last chapter, Jesus says this in Revelation 22, verse 7. He says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So again, this is not just supposed to fill our minds it is supposed to fill our hearts. It is supposed to guide our steps. It is to direct us as we love and live for Jesus Christ, as we long for that day when we will see him face to face. And so with that in mind, please note this on your outline and we'll close here. In the book of Revelation, bringing things full circle, we will see God's plan, which began in Genesis it is brought to completion in Jesus Christ. God's plan, which began in Genesis, is now fulfilled in Revelation. In Genesis, there is the first heaven and the first earth. In Revelation, there is the new heaven and the new earth. In Genesis, there is the tree of life lost and guarded. In Revelation, the tree of life is freely given to the people of God. In Genesis, the first Adam brings sin and death into the world. In Revelation, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, puts an end to sin and corruption. In Genesis, the devil is active and cunning. In Revelation, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. In Genesis, the curse is pronounced upon all creation. In Revelation, the curse is forever removed. In Genesis, we see the beginning of sorrow and suffering. In Revelation, every tear will be wiped away. In Genesis, there is the first death. In Revelation, we see the death of death. Why? Because in Revelation, the fullness and the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, we praise You. We magnify Your name, for You are worthy. You are wise. You are sovereign. And we praise Your name that You did indeed give this revelation to Your Son to entrust to Your servants, that we may see it, that we may read it, that we may know it, that we may walk in wisdom and live for You in these last days. Lord, we pray that as we go throughout this study that You would give us soft and humble hearts before you, that we would be teachable before you, that we would look into your word and that we would be changed, that we would see the glories of Christ and that we would respond in wonder, worship, love and praise. Do this for your glory. Do this for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.